you are listening to an episode of Trade Talks, a podcast about the economics of trade policy. I'm Samaya Keynes, the U.S. Economics and Trade Editor for The Economist. And I'm Chad Bown, a senior fellow with the Peterson Institute for International Economics. This week, we are going to talk about the U.S.-Mexico-Canada Agreement, or USMCA. It's fun to sign the USMCA. It's fun to sign the USMCA. Hopefully that introduction, sung by my new DC choir, clears up any questions about pronunciation. First question is how we got here, and I think it's worth remembering the journey that we've all been on. So point one is that the Trump administration has been making all kinds of threats in terms of what it would do if there was no new agreement reached. The first one was it was threatening to withdraw. Then you had all these tariff threats. Potentially 25% tariffs on automobiles, trucks, parts. And those became credible when the Trump administration actually imposed tariffs on Canada and on Mexico on steel and aluminum back in June. In the process of negotiation, the Trump administration arrived at the table and made a lot of demands in the negotiation that were fairly outlandish. So as part of our homework assignment for preparing for this episode, I thought it was useful to actually go back to the document that they published last July of 2017, laying out their demands. And when you look at this, they had things like, we want to use this trade agreement to address the bilateral trade deficit that we have with Mexico and maybe even with Canada. We want to introduce the right to impose anti-dumping on seasonal products. So that's them demanding new rights to impose tariffs within a free trade agreement. And along the way, the Trump administration reportedly added on a lot of new demands. They wanted a sunset clause that the deal could be halted by any one country wanting to get out of it after only five years. They wanted America-specific content for automobiles. They wanted 50% of the value of a car to be made up of stuff made in the United States only. They also, in the later stages, threatened to go bilaterally. The U.S. did this agreement with Mexico. That was only a month ago or so. And, you know, in the final weeks, it, it seemed like they were really getting ready to make some kind of bilateral deal and carve out the Canadians from the pact, which would have been absolutely devastating for the Canadian car industry had they gone through with that. In a number of online editions of major media outlets on late Friday, September 28th, we're reporting that there was not going to be a deal with Canada and it was only going to have a U.S.-Mexico deal being submitted to Congress. Right at the last minute, Canada said, no, 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 we'll come back to the table. And then on Monday, October 1st, we actually had this announcement of a three-country deal. Big picture, it looks like the Americans made a lot of threats. And in one sense, they kind of worked. This deal was done much more quickly than a normal trade agreement. Most of the wins of the Canadians and, and even the Mexicans seem to be that they maintained the status quo, which is a very strange thing to feel coming out of a trade negotiation. So to be fair, maybe we shouldn't read too much into the speediness of the timing, given that a lot of the work had already been done through the Trans-Pacific Partnership Agreement that these three countries had already negotiated before President Trump came into office. That's how we got here. So now we've had a few days to look at this deal. Trade deals are about two things. They're about market access and they're about rules. And this trade deal is almost entirely about new rules. There's very, very little extra market access that either side has granted to the other. And again, that's largely because these three countries had a free trade agreement between them already. Most all tariffs were already cut to zero. There's a few products 
on the goods side where there were quantitative restrictions that can be opened up a little bit more. There are some new things on services and new areas of the economy that weren't in the original NAFTA deal, but basically a lot of the tariff cutting had already been done. There are one or two exceptions, and, and the first relates to something that both Mexico and Canada agreed to, which is an increase in the de minimis thresholds. So when you send a teeny, teeny, tiny object from the US to Mexico or Canada, if it's worth not very much, then essentially it doesn't face any customs duties or tariffs, and it gets to go through with less paperwork than a normal shipment. And so the fight was, well, how small does this thing have to be? How low can its value be before it escapes these duties and and paperwork? And for the United States, this de minimis threshold has been relatively high. It's about $800. But for Canada and Mexico, it's actually ridiculously low. So part of the argument was to try to get Canada and Mexico to increase their thresholds so that you could see more cross-border trade from small and medium-sized enterprises occurring through electronic commerce, the internet, eBay, Amazon, those types of things. So Canada and Mexico both raised their thresholds. The other bigger one was dairy access. And this was one of the things that was agreed right at the last minute. The Canadians agreed to open up their dairy market to the tune of 3.6% of the overall market. And and 3.6% does not sound very much, but it was more than the Americans got under the TPP. And I know that they were trying really hard to get more than they had done under the TPP, probably wanting to avoid people like us saying, well, couldn't you just have, have got this anyway with that other free trade agreement that you, you walked out of? But they got more. Though not a whole lot more. And clearly one of the outcomes of this, as Meredith Lilly said uh, on an episode a few weeks ago, is that essentially those dairy farmers are now going to be compensated for that. So those are the market access items in the deal. There were some on services, but mainly this was about rules. And one of the biggest areas that they agreed was how dispute settlement was going to work in this new pact. So when one country accuses the other of breaking the rules, how does that get dealt with? And going back to the Trump administration's objectives, they had wanted to get rid of entirely some of these dispute settlement provisions in the old NAFTA. One of them in particular, this chapter 19 that we've talked about a number of times, this special dispute settlement system where a country can challenge the use of anti-dumping or countervailing duties, these anti-subsidy tariffs that the United States especially likes to put on imports coming in from other countries. Canada really wanted to fight to keep this thing. And ultimately they did. It stays. The other major dispute settlement provision is this state-to-state dispute settlement, the normal way of filing trade disputes that the government brings forward. In the old NAFTA, that was called Chapter 20. In the New Deal, I think this is going to be referred to as Chapter 31. I should point out that there were some problems with that old Chapter 20, that state-to-state dispute settlement system. In order to hear these disputes, you're supposed to have a roster of judges that you can call upon to actually rule on the disputes. But ever since a dispute between the U.S. and Mexico on sugar, essentially the U.S. has just refused to approve the people that could potentially hear those disputes. And that's blocked the entire mechanism. And so there hasn't been a case in years and years using this process. Now, I've been hearing from informed people that as part of the negotiations, they did actually manage to get this fixed. There's an understanding that, yes, the the roster will be agreed, and so this process will be unblocked. There are enough people out there claiming that this hasn't been fixed, that it's clearly a bit ambiguous in the text, so we will wait and see. But my understanding is that 
negotiators thought that they had addressed this problem. There's a third system of dispute settlement, which is something called investor state dispute settlement, or ISDS. This is where essentially investors use the NAFTA to sue foreign governments. And this is the really, really controversial one because it gets to the heart of fears on the left about companies undermining sovereignty, making governments worry about doing policy changes that would be in their own citizens' best interests because they're worried about being sued. And on the other side, Ambassador Lighthizer has argued that this Chapter 11 under the NAFTA, the ISDS, was actually the U.S. government providing insurance for American investors to go create jobs in Mexico or in Canada and not in the United States. And so he was not a big fan of this thing either. And the idea was that the legal certainty that this mechanism gave them made them more comfortable about investing overseas. In the U.S. MCA, ISDS survives in limited form. Between the U.S. and Mexico, it's still there for certain sectors, the ones that wanted it the most. Between the US and Canada, it's going to be phased out after three years. The Canadians are claiming this as a huge win for them. Of course, the Americans demanded it too, so I doubt that negotiation was very long. And so if, like me, you're wondering, well, what about the Canada-Mexico relationship? Did ISDS survive there? As Mona Pinchas-Paulson reminded me, even though it's not in this deal, Canada and Mexico have another free trade agreement between them, the CPTPP, which does have an ISDS chapter in it, which would protect the investors in that particular arrangement. So thanks, Mona, for reminding me. With all of those bilateral investment treaties, those other trade deals, if you're a company, a multinational company, and you really want to sue a particular government, then there's probably still going to be a way. And a lot of these countries do also have domestic courts that you could sue in as well. Longtime critics of trade deals have looked at this elimination of ISDS between Canada and the US and said, hmm, this is, this is pretty good. And there are some other things in the deal that that group of people quite likes. One of them, again, on the rules side, is the labor standards that are baked into the deal. Here's Celeste Drake of the AFL-CIO, which is a federation of American trade unions and a group that's historically been extremely critical of the trade deals that America has agreed to. With respect to the labor provisions in the new NAFTA, there are some really meaningful improvements. It protects the right to strike. It clarifies what minimum wages mean. It makes sure that migrant workers have protection. It actually requires countries to address violence and intimidation against workers. And most importantly, there's an annex that requires Mexico to change its laws to eradicate the protection contract system, which is the system that Mexico and unscrupulous employers have used for years to push wages down and to keep workers in Mexico from organizing independent unions and bargaining for better wages. Those things are all better than the TPP, and certainly they're better than the current NAFTA because the current NAFTA is a side agreement that has proved totally unenforceable. And that gets us to the crux of these changes. They're positive, but they won't be meaningful at all unless there are swift and certain enforcement mechanisms beyond the state-to-state -state dispute settlement system in NAFTA. Celeste doesn't seem convinced that the text, as it is currently written, goes far enough to address her concerns. So one of the traditional complaints by labor unions in the United States is when they have tried to convince the American government to file disputes against 
Mexico or other country for failing to enforce labor standards, the American government hasn't actually taken them seriously and brought these disputes forward. If the American government really wanted to show the unions that they were taking their concerns seriously, then they could just set up some kind of automatic mechanism whereby whenever the union wanted to file a dispute, the American government would automatically take it on and and sue the Mexicans. That doesn't seem to be in the original text, but it is something that perhaps could get inserted into the implementing legislation when this thing comes closer to being inserted into American law. And it's not something that they would have to go back and negotiate over again with Canada or Mexico because it would just be about how the Americans are conducting their own business in these types of disputes. Celeste wants a few other things to to show up in, in these new enforceable labor standards. What we're looking for are additional things in the agreement, for instance, agreements between the parties to allow imports to be inspected, to make sure that the factories where they were produced followed the labor obligations, to allow for audits, to beef up the inspections and allow inspections to be monitored by international advisors, that kind of thing. And I'm sure the lobbyists representing American businesses will have some things to say about those proposals. The third big rule change relates to our favorite rules of origin for motor vehicles. And here there are some big changes. The old deal said that 62.5% of a car's value had to come from North America if it wanted to go from Mexico or Canada into America without paying any tariffs. And that 62.5% number came with some loopholes. So the New Deal gets rid of those loopholes and increases that to 75%. That's 75% North American content. The other change is that a car now has to have up to 40% of its value made by workers earning on average $16 per hour. And I say up to 40% because car companies can get credits against that amount if they have research and development located in North America. And there's a lot more complicated elements to this as well depending on the types of parts, so transmissions, drive chains. 70% of the steel or aluminum you use in a car has to be from North America. There's just a lot of real regulatory details that have to be satisfied if you want to have your car come in mainly from Canada or Mexico into the United States and continue to have access to this zero tariff. That's a lot of cars. So I think together, Mexico and Canada supply roughly a quarter of American car purchases. Now, the biggest question here is obviously what these new rules will do to the number of American jobs in car manufacturing. And it's kind of ambiguous when you treat these rule changes on their own. On the one hand, these rules clearly incentivize car companies to locate in high-wage jurisdictions. They may even be so complicated that They may encourage car companies to locate their manufacturing in America so they don't have to deal with the hassle of all these new rules, but that should increase American car manufacturing employment. But on the other hand, these cost increases are ultimately potentially going to raise prices for American consumers. And some of the car companies may decide that consumers aren't willing to pay for that, and so they may choose an alternative. And currently, the alternative is to not satisfy all of these new rules of origin requirements and instead build your car in Mexico or Canada, ship it into the United States, not get the zero tariff, but pay that normal tariff that all other countries in the world that sell their cars in the United States pay, which is currently at least 2.5%. Maybe car company executives will just reject the deal and go for the cheapest method of manufacturing possible that doesn't include raising a huge amount of American content and jobs. 
But I'm skeptical that that's going to happen, and and that's because of some of the other things that are also in this deal. Mexico, in particular, is clearly planning for the contingency that that 2.5 percent MFN tariff, the one that car companies would have to pay in order to access the U.S. market for these non-conforming autos, the ones that don't meet the rules of origin, that that tariff might not actually exist. And there's two different places where Mexico has inserted extra provisions about what would happen if the United States decided to raise its tariff. The first is under this Annex 2C. And there, Mexico has protected itself by getting the United States to agree that if the U.S. raises its normal MFN tariff, so suppose it goes to the WTO and raises it to 10% or 25%, Mexico could still export cars to the United States under the old 2.5%, provided they satisfy at least the old rules of origin under the original NAFTA agreement, up to a certain limit. And the limit currently, or at least in the text, is 1.6 million units. And this protects against the Trump administration's concern that some of the automakers that are locating in Mexico just might start sourcing all sorts of their parts from China at really low prices, really low costs, and completely evade the rules of origin. That wouldn't even be satisfying the old NAFTA's rules. So that's the first provision of this new text to deal with this special contingency. And the second provision goes to this issue of the national security tariffs, these Section 232 tariffs that President Trump has threatened to impose on cars on Canada, Mexico, Europe, Japan. And in a second place in this deal where this same exact issue comes up is if the Trump administration were to choose to raise its tariff, not through the normal MFN, just raising the tariff, but by applying special tariffs under this national security law, this investigation that they have ongoing at the moment, the Section 232 case, the same sort of incentives could arise. And those letters act as a reminder to executives and international car companies who might have a choice between locating production in, say, Japan or the US, that these threats are still out there for Japan, the European Union, and you shouldn't feel too comfortable that those tariffs won't be applied. So altogether, I suspect that the threats combined with the deal will increase the incentive to locate production in America. There's a separate point about how much production leads to extra jobs given the number of robots in, in these factories. But, you know, we'll find out about that. And as an additional point, just formalizing this Section 232 process into these side letters. And there's a separate process for any future 232 actions that might be taken on other goods as well, how Canada and Mexico can have a special time period to to have negotiations with the U.S. administration over this. To clarify, those side agreements essentially say if you were to impose tariffs in the name of national security, Canada and Mexico would have 60 days to negotiate some kind of carve-out. It's kind of a a pre-deal with your hostage taker to say, if you take me hostage, then these are the terms I want. But if you're a business trying to make plans, then that's a fairly alarming thing to see in your trade agreement. And back in the steel and aluminum Section 232 investigations, Canada and Mexico were given more than 60 days to try to negotiate some sort of outcome with the Trump administration and couldn't manage to do so before the tariffs ended up getting imposed on them. And it's worth noting that with this USMCA, the tariffs on steel and aluminium are still in place. There are some other super interesting precedents that this trade deal sets. One that I noticed is text that seems to warn members of this new pact away from negotiating and agreeing trade deals with non-market economies. I can't think which kind of economy that might be. So there is this new 
Article 3210, which is what we're talking about here. It's got a couple of interesting pieces to it. So the first is that for countries that are starting to negotiate a new free trade agreement with, let's say, China, a non-market economy, you have to tell the other countries three months prior to the beginning of those negotiations that you're about to do so. And then another interesting point is if you actually reach a free trade agreement with, let's say, China. Just to take an example. All of the other countries could choose to terminate this U.S. MCA, provided they just give six months notice. That isn't very different from the existing termination procedures, as the Canadian leadership has pointed out. If you're unhappy with the pact, then you can withdraw with six months notice anytime you want. It doesn't necessarily need to relate to this negotiation with China. This does seem to be part of a Trump administration strategy of maybe saying, hey, world, when it comes to China, you're either for us or against us. Part of the discussion now that seems to be taking place, at least in Canada and Mexico, if this is really a Trump administration initiative, is are these countries giving up sovereignty, their ability to kind of go out and negotiate a free trade agreement with China if they were to want to? Now they maybe can't because President Trump has said there's going to be consequences. I suspect that the more significant effect it will have is on the signal that the Chinese get about the ways that this trade war is going to be waged. Americans really didn't want the Canadians to sign a trade agreement with China, then this clause wouldn't be the thing that would would make that happen or not. So we do have a number of new elements of this trade agreement establishing precedents that are likely to reduce trade. So we've got the more restrictive rules of origin for automobiles that don't sign a free trade agreement with China, and another one which is in the dairy sector. And there's new rules requiring Canada to actually implement export taxes restrain their exports if certain conditions are going to be met. And I just want to thank Jeff Schott for first pointing this out to me. We should say at this point that as written in the current deal, the numbers are fairly small. This relates to skimmed milk powder, a very narrow range of products. And it also is in the context of a very, very protected sector in the Canadian economy, which, which is dairy. The way someone described it to me is this it was it was a kind of belt and suspenders approach. So on the one hand, you have quite separate to these export taxes, restrictions on the prices that certain products can be sold at. And the US dairy industry was concerned that in response to those prices, there was going to be a surge in, in exports of these things on, onto the global market. And so the export taxes are designed to act as some kind of safety valve to provide assurances to the American dairy sector that no, 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 don't worry, that won't happen. But fundamentally, what it's doing is it's restricting competition in third markets. It's not just focused on the bilateral dairy relationship between the US and Canada. The, the, the way that this thing is quite extraordinary is that it says Canada will have to restrict its exports to other countries as part of this deal, of these very, very narrow products. And the interesting precedent here is there's just very few international commitments that countries have taken on with respect to their export taxes. So for the United States, this isn't an issue. Under the U.S. Constitution, export taxes are completely illegal. So the United States just doesn't use export taxes. But other countries, very few of them have taken on any commitments at all. The exception is China. 
China, when it came into the WTO, the existing WTO members were worried that China was actually going to impose export taxes on raw materials, rare earths. There's actually been a lot of WTO disputes about these things. And they wanted to make sure that China didn't impose those export taxes. They wanted to be able to import these types of products from China for their manufacturing sectors. Well, here we have a precedent going in the other direction. It's not as if the Americans are worried about the Canadians actually restraining their exports They actually want the Canadians to impose these export taxes and stop exporting as much to third markets. To my knowledge, I just haven't seen these types of provisions in trade agreements before. But back to the belt and suspenders issue, what seems to be happening here is there's a failure to attack the problem at its source, right? The fact that you have this really protectionist underlying scheme in Canada for dairy, you're creating all of these other ways of confronting that that are likely to introduce lots of other distortions. One of the other precedents that this deal sets is that it includes a sunset clause, not anything as strong as what the Americans were first proposing. There will be a review period after six years, and then the deal could be terminated 10 years later if if the three parties don't agree to continue it. I think the danger is that you end up politicizing the process of, of renewing the deal and another Mr. Trump comes along in, in, in six years' time. And the economic concern with that is having one of these sunset clauses just introduces uncertainty and erodes the value of having the trade deal in the first place. There's one final precedent that I would like to mention, and and huge thanks to Brad Setzer for taking me through this earlier in the week. So this deal actually goes further than, than any before it in terms of laying out new obligations that that countries have to be transparent about the way that their central banks are intervening in the currency markets. So there are new requirements for them to promptly notify when they have done interventions, and that's actually enforceable. There are a lot of other commitments that are not enforceable, and they're you know, essentially obligations that countries have signed up to under, under the IMF. But I think overall the view is that this is, this is a, a positive step, perhaps not the, the gold standard or as far as some people would like in terms of putting enforceable currency manipulation rules into, into a trade deal, but certainly more than anything that's happened before. And while Canada and Mexico certainly aren't being currency manipulators, this is clearly one of these areas that's setting precedent for probably future trade deals that the United States might sign with other countries where this is a bigger concern. Finally, what's next? This deal is going to be signed by the three leaders towards the end of November, and then it needs to be ratified. So the American and Mexican Congresses both need to approve it, and the Canadian Parliament needs to approve it. I think in Mexico and Canada, the sense is that they just want this to be over with. So listeners, correct me if I'm wrong, but I I just don't get the sense that this is going to be a hugely problematic process in Mexico and Canada. In America... There's a super interesting question about when they try to get this through. So under trade promotion authority legislation, which is that the vehicle the Trump administration is going to be using to to get this deal passed, normal process would suggest that essentially Congress would wait for a report to be published by the USITC. This is the report that would set out the the economic impact of the deal. We mentioned this a, a few episodes ago. They would try to analyze the impact and that would give Congress the information that they would need to decide yay or nay. However, over the past couple of days, reports have emerged that if the Democrats win the House of Representatives in the upcoming midterm elections, then the Republicans would be so keen to get this through and they they know that that would be very difficult under a Democrat majority House 
that they might just try to push this thing through in the lame duck session, i.e. before the report came out. So we'll see. That would be unprecedented, but we do live in somewhat unprecedented times when it comes to thinking about trade agreements. If the Trump administration found that it had to wait and to try and push this agreement through when there were more Democrats in power, then they would have to pay attention to the concerns of the unions, the likes of Celeste, who have been warning that what they've seen in the deal right now might need to be improved before they could lend their wholehearted support. And while it's unlikely that they'd be able to go back to Canada and Mexico and ask for more They may be able to do things in the implementing legislation that would help improve the deal from the perspective of unions and other types of groups like that. Here's Celeste. What we'll be doing next is trying to work with the administration and with members of Congress to make sure that we get the best final deal that we can and implementing legislation that includes the right funding and the right provisions that we know that enforcement of the labor obligations will be swift and it will be certain. And that is all for Trade Talks. A huge thank you to trade negotiators from the United States, Canada and Mexico for bringing these negotiations to a close. Thank you. I would also love to thank Celeste Drake of the AFL-CIO, Brad Setzer of the Council on Foreign Relations, Kristen Chichek of the Center for Automotive Research, Meredith Lilly of the University of Ottawa, Jeff Schott, Chad's colleague at the Peterson Institute. It's been a busy few days. I really appreciate the time everyone took to share their thoughts about this deal. To learn more, read my piece in The Economist and Jeff Schott's breakdown as well. That's on the Peterson Institute website. And don't forget about me. I've been writing about this too. I just haven't found a home yet for the piece that I've written about the new USMCA. I'm sure we'll be tweeting it out once it's found a home. And thanks, as always, to our audio guy, Colin Warren. Thanks to all the listeners who wrote in with their suggestions of things we could cover. I'm very sorry we didn't get to all of them. Do follow us on Twitter. I'm at Samaya Keynes. And I'm at Chad Bown. And we're on at trade underscore underscore talks. That's not one but two underscores, at trade underscore underscore talks. Because when it comes to the USMCA, two countries trying desperately to stand strong against the Trump administration turned out to be better than one. And I forgot to thank my choir. Thank you to the 18th Street Singers in Washington, D.C. for their excellent rendition of how fun it is to sign the USMCA.